0: Welcome to the podcast, How to Be Well and Strong. I'm your host, Jacqueline Genova, and I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with some of the leading figures in the fields of wellness, integrative medicine, and mental health as we discover what it truly means to be well and strong in both body and mind. Get ready to be empowered, inspired, and motivated about being an advocate for your own health. Welcome back to another episode of the show, everyone. I am so excited to be speaking with our guest, Emily Johnson, today to discuss how dysfunction in our metabolic health paves the road for chronic disease, some of the symptoms and conditions that are linked to glucose dysregulation, and tactical strategies to help manage those spikes. Emily Johnson is a registered dietitian with a master's degree in nutrition interventions, communication, and behavioral change from Tufts University. Her background is in clinical nutrition research, health writing and advising, and the tech sector. At Very, she is the research lead, serving as the health and nutrition expert for the team. In this role, she ensures that Very's app features, marketing materials, and publications are backed by rigorous scientific research. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you so, so much. I'm so excited to be here and to
1: chat with you a little bit more about glucose and and everything that comes with that metabolic
0: health. I'm so grateful we were able to connect. We were just chatting. And for listeners, Emily works at a company called Vary, which is a company that essentially provides a membership where you get access to continuous glucose monitors, food and lifestyle recommendations, and basically a community, right, Emily, to really just help you manage your, your blood sugar journey.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Got a, got a lot of facets there. Um, kind of helps you dive deeper into metabolic health with your own bio data um, and kind of get back in touch with your body signals a little bit more.
0: I like to start with just some very basic level setting for our listeners. So what is blood sugar, Emily, and how does it affect our body's energy levels?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So when we talk about glucose, we're talking about a simple form of sugar that comes from your food. Um, and this is food with carbohydrates. Mostly every single food contains some carbohydrates, some form of sugar, whether it's natural or added. We can get into that later. But Um, So we're talking about blood glucose, um, also called blood sugar. They're sort of interchangeable. We're talking about measuring the amount of glucose in your bloodstream at a point in time. So this can be sort of like a snapshot of where your glucose is at this very moment. However, glucose fluctuates throughout the day. um, But generally in healthy people, it's pretty tightly regulated um, within a normal range by your body, right? Um, And so when you eat, this food is broken down into its simplest form for digestion and absorption. Um, And if a food contains carbohydrates, it is gonna be broken down into glucose. So as you take in food with carbohydrates, your blood glucose is going to increase. And this is normal. Um, Glucose from your meal is then shuttled to your muscles and to your cells where it is further even broken down into a sort of like almost like the tiniest, tiniest chemical element um, where it's used for energy. So glucose is is really crucial for energy. Um, And even when you're not eating, uh, there's always some baseline glucose level that's circulating in your blood, keeping you alive. So glucose is crucial to be alive. At the same time, uh, it's actually really crucial for your energy levels and what we see it vary a lot of time with people who use our, our product um, and and start to tap into their metabolic health, is that um, a high level or a low level of glucose can seriously disrupt your energy levels, right? So if your glucose is way too high um, or it's going really low, things like that, um, you might start to feel some symptoms, or you might start to feel like, hey, my energy levels is out of whack, um, and and that may, um, without you even knowing it, be due to your glucose being out of range for you.
0: What role does insulin play in that process of regulating blood sugar?
1: Yeah, so for those who don't know, um, insulin is a hormone that is secreted by the pancreas. Um, when we talk about the role that insulin plays in regulating glucose levels, insulin essentially is the regulator, right? So your When you eat those carbohydrates that we talked about uh, and your blood sugar starts to rise, um, insulin is released from the pancreas. The pancreas is going to sense that, oh my gosh, the blood glucose of the person's bloodstream is starting to rise. Let's release some some insulin, which is going to essentially um, act as a key to cells, right? It's going to open up those cells so that glucose can go in and be used for energy. And again, all of this is super normal. um, And and that's a process that happens throughout the day for, for people whenever you're eating or things like that. So the problem that can arise and that we, again, see, see pretty frequently and we're starting to see more frequently, just generally in the public health space, is that people are starting to develop insulin resistance. And this is when the mechanism between, you know, sort of your glucose rising and insulin being released starts to starts to break down. And the common way we talk about it, there's a lot of things that can cause insulin resistance, but um, is repeated stress to your system and your cells start to actually not respond appropriately to insulin, which results in both higher than normal levels of glucose um, and higher than normal levels of insulin in the bloodstream. And this can result in all kinds of things, um, but storing extra glucose in the muscles and the liver. And when these stores fill up uh, and your glucose is still elevated, um, our bodies can store this extra glucose as fat. So sometimes unwanted weight gain, it can cause inflammation. um, And there can be this vicious cycle when people start to develop insulin resistance of high glucose, high insulin, and increased fat storage, which can make it really... Hard for those who are trying to lose weight um, to lose weight. Now, that's not to say anyone, everyone who's trying to lose weight as insulin resistance, but it's become a more common thing that we see is that this insulin is crucial to blood glucose regulation. And when that sort of starts to, that relationship starts to break down, that's when we start to see metabolic problems starting to arise for people.
0: It truly is a vicious cycle. And I'd love to touch on this at some point, but insulin resistance is correlated to even hormonal disorders, right? Like polycystic ovary syndrome in women, which is huge. But for people who don't measure their blood sugar how can they know if they're not successfully managing those levels throughout the day? I know you had mentioned some symptoms before, like lethargy, you know, brain fog. What are some of those other things to look out for?
1: Yeah, so I think the key is that, you know, it to really touch tap into your blood glucose levels and understand that You do need to be monitoring or testing in some way. Some people do a finger prick, do, you know, a lot of um, people with diabetes or without, you can always do that. But we we say that that's sort of really a snapshot in time. You're not getting that understanding the whole relationship between, you know, what you ate and how your glucose is changing, high or low after that. But, you know, when your glucose is too high, maybe you eat a meal that's a little too high carb or a little processed or something like that, um, you may start to feel some symptoms, like you mentioned, that are um, lethargy fatigue, brain fog. Some people just feel really sluggish, tired even. Um, you can feel really thirsty. Um, that's a little bit more of an extreme one, but like dry mouth might be the case if you're like after after a meal. Um, and what can often occur after a high blood sugar is that your body is trying to compensate. It's releasing more and more insulin because it sees that your blood sugar is rising. And basically insulin response lags a few minutes behind glucose response. And so you can release more insulin than you need essentially for your blood glucose rise. And so after a high blood sugar, you might feel like your glucose is starting to crash. And that symptomology is also different, which is includes sort of like dizziness, uh, shakiness, even some sweating. Um, Some people feel, again, like really weak, um, different, different than being fatigued and tired. And that can actually be low blood glucose. Um, I think for people who are not monitoring, trying to pay attention to how they feel after meals or a couple hours after meals even can be a good start in noticing patterns. Like, Hey, every day after lunch, I really feel gross. I can't get through. I hit that 3 PM wall. Like sometimes that 3 PM wall people feel at work is, is their glucose kind of being, um, a little bit out of whack. And so it's good to start paying attention to those feelings after meals. Um, and monitoring can help you dive further.
0: Honestly, Emily, when I first started using a continuous glucose monitor, the insights that I had access to were life-changing. Figuring out that oatmeal, for example, something that folks otherwise think is relatively healthy, and it does have its health benefits, but you may not want to have oatmeal first thing in the morning, right? You want your breakfast to be protein-heavy. And I've heard people say, too, that when you're kind of analyzing that glucose chart, we'd like to see rolling hills rather than mountains and valleys when tracking our blood sugar. So with that what are some of your favorite, I guess, hacks to avoid those spikes? And I've heard them broken down into the categories of food pairing, food timing, food sequencing. I'd love to pick your brain on, on all of those. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, the hacks are
1: are really great. And I think, you know, the way I like to think about them too, is I think people think of hacks being a quick fix, right? And, and really it's, they are quick little tips and tricks, but it's sort of like building a toolkit, right? And it's important to experiment um, and find out for yourself what's going to work best for you. Like you might find that the food pairing thing works really great for you, but maybe, you know, certain food pairing, that same food pairing, doesn't work as well for me. And so, I think that's what's cool about monitoring is that you can find really what are the health habits that are going to best serve your unique biochemistry. So, for me, a post meal walk is bar none. Um, and there was actually a recent recent study involving healthy non diabetic people, and it was found that thirty minute walk that started at least, you know, around 15 minutes after a meal, um, was the most effective, uh, strategy for reducing blood glucose. And so, you know, a 30 minute walk, you might not have enough time for that, but there has also been research that shows that just two minutes of walking, you know, you might still see an increase, but that's going to curb it more than if you had just sat on the couch. You know, if you can do five minutes around your house, if you could get outside, great. Um, so that is a big one. Um, and, and really it can be any form of exercise, right? You can do squats or whatever, just air squats at your desk. Um, another one we talk about is giving your carbs a buddy. So fiber, um, adding something to your carbs to, uh, sort of slow the absorption of them to slow the glucose absorption can be really great. So any any foods with fiber, um, even fat can really help to slow the absorption of blood glucose. Um, and another one is along those same lines, like you talked about, about food pairing is Veggies first. So, fiber or vegetables, like having a side salad as an appetizer before your dinner, can be really helpful because that fiber actually is not digestible and it helps to slow the absorption of blood glucose into the bloodstream. Um, There's other ones that work really well for people. Some people swear by, you know, a a shot of apple cider vinegar before a meal. There has been some research to support that that can be. really helpful in in curbing glucose and, you know, sometimes just cooking with it or using it as a dressing. You know, you don't have to drink it if you don't want to. And again, I don't look at any of these one things as the thing that's going to correct metabolic health issues, if that's something that you have, but it's it's part of the puzzle, right? It's your toolkit. You can take these out to kind of make sure that you're having better energy levels throughout the day, feeling a little bit better, and you're not being hit by that spike that's going to make you feel gross for the rest of your day.
0: I love all of those. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I'll do like a set of 20 squats or so if I'm in a rush and I don't have time for a walk and you truly do feel the difference. And the apple cider vinegar, I do that. I haven't actually tested to see its effect when I have a CGM in. So that's on my my to-do list next time I have one. But for listeners too, you never want to just drink straight apple cider vinegar because it's very acidic and it's not great for your teeth. So what I like to do is I mix it usually like a tablespoon with water. I'll sip it through a straw game changer there. But you touched on it before that each person responds differently. And that's obviously in the context to those hacks, but also to food as well, right? Everyone is metabolically different. And I have read a lot of research that our microbiome composition is a big factor in that, in that people actually have different bacteria compositions that process those carbs differently. So with that in mind, Do you have just a general nutritional strategy approach to really optimizing our metabolic function? Is there a certain type of diet? I mean, we spoke about food pairing, but just taking it up a step,
1: yeah, you're totally right about the gut microbiome. And that's a fascinating area of research could be its own podcast, right? And I'm sure you've done some of those before. But um, yeah, there really is. Um, there's starting to be a lot of research, like you said, about the connection between your gut microbiome and both nutrition processing, even glucose regulation, you know, it, and a lot of it is is pretty new and fascinating. But I think the thing um, for me is diet diversity. So getting a lot of different types of foods, right? Like And especially when it comes to plant-based foods, fruit, uh, vegetables, whole grains, you know, we sort of have this uh, phrase of eat the rainbow, right? Eating all different colors of foods um, is just going to get you different phenolic compounds, phytonutrients, uh, micronutrients, all of those kinds of things. And a lot of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains are... Um, high in fiber, which feeds your gut microbiome and helps healthy colonies of gut bacteria to grow, helps diversify your gut bacteria um, and supports um, just again, like a healthy gut colony that can help support overall health and specifically metabolic health. Um, Now there's also worth mentioning um, fermented foods, right? We know that foods, fermented foods can act as natural probiotics. um, And you can always take a probiotic. I understand that's you know, easy. Um, But obviously if you're eating your probiotics through fermented foods, not only are you going to get diverse sort of bacteria in there, diversity of micronutrients, things like that, but um, it's actually can be, can be um, a lot of studies show that it's, it can be helpful uh, to eat them in real foods rather than just to take a pill. So
0: that's what I would recommend a lot of the time. Yeah. That just made me remember this, but my mom is currently working with someone who's trained in in Dr. Naysha Winter's metabolic approach to cancer. And one thing that she wants my mom to do is have eight different vegetables each day, focus on that variety. And that's been a consistent theme across the board in all my conversations because I always like to touch on the topic of nutrition. But everyone says diversity is key to building microbiome health, which is why it's so important. Again, eat the rainbow. I'm a huge advocate of eating locally and seasonally. Switching over a bit, Emily. So looking at diets, for example, that low carb versus high carb, right? Low fat versus high fat. This is such a nuanced area. So looking at that, I'm just curious on your take and how do those diets affect our long-term response to insulin? So I raise this question because I know that, for example, insulin resistance often improves promptly for most people when they begin a ketogenic diet. But recently read a study that showed that after a prolonged period of time, keto diets could actually cause insulin resistance. And I mean, logically it makes sense, right? Because a keto diet dramatically reduces the body's need to burn carbs, which then stunts its ability to burn carbs when we do eat them. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think that's something that a lot of our users come into contact with a lot. um, And we call it sort of like the keto or even just low carb induced, uh, carbon tolerance, right? And, and really like anything, like if you think about the way you might go into a keto diet, which is to slowly reduce carbohydrates so that your body gets used to it or whatever, right? If you're kind of easing into it, um, it's sort of a similar thing, right? Like our bodies are generally speaking, super adaptive, super, um, know what they need, things like that. So your body is getting used to burning, Um, Fat for fuel in a keto state, and so when you reintroduce carbs, especially if you're not very slowly reintroducing carbohydrates and introducing them, like, again, like we talked about, like adding fiber, making sure that they are um, paired with protein and fat, things like that, you are going to see some um glucose sort of oscillations or variability that might be a little bit extreme. But again, your body will adapt to that as well after time. So if someone is coming off of keto or wants to reintroduce carbs, we just say, do it slowly. And with our, our sort of perspective at varies. we're very diet agnostic, right? We want you to find the diet that works best for you. But the thing that we talk about a lot is metabolic flexibility, which is sort of training your body to be able to do a good job switching between carbs and fat for fuel, because your body will use fat for fuel if you're just fasting, right? And, and I don't mean fasting like, oh, I'm doing I'm not eating for days. But you know, if I'm stop eating at 6pm, and I don't eat till, you know, 9am the next day. So, um, if you're thinking about trying to be, become more metabolically flexible, get your body to very, uh, effectively use the different fuels that you give it, you know, fat and, and carbohydrates and things like that. We recommend, um, the Mediterranean generally, right. Diet is, is usually really great because you're getting that diet diversity things like that. Um, you're getting a lot of healthy carbs, not a lot of processed foods, but also trying to Increase your your fasting window. You know, you don't have to intermittent fast, but just like let me eat my dinner a little bit earlier and, you know, have more time overnight that I'm not eating as well as a little bit more time between meals can be helpful for kind of cultivating that metabolic flexibility and keeping your insulin sensitivity
0: high. You answered my next question and that was, you know, is there an optimal meal timing or frequency that can help control those levels? Again, recognizing that everyone's different, but I've started to actually eat breakfast first thing in the morning. So I came from this old mindset of I'm going to fast until 11am, 1130. And thinking that that 16 hour fasting window was great for me when in reality, it was quite the opposite. It put a lot of stress on my body. But do you recommend that people eat breakfast first thing in the morning to optimize their blood sugar levels throughout the day? So there is some, there is research to show we, we know in a lot of,
1: um, like with meal timing, like you said, um, again, different things going to work different with different people because of unique biology. So we always recommend testing it and kind of doing some experiments as we call them. Right. Um, but typically, generally speaking, you are more insulin sensitive earlier in the day, um, and you are less insulin sensitive at the end of the day as your body starts to go, okay, we're going to sleep. We're ready to kind of quote unquote, uh, close-up shop for the night, right? And and all of your, your metabolic functions and, and functions sort of slow down because you're not eating, you're not using as much glucose, you're resting and recovering when you sleep. Um, so for some people, yes, moving your breakfast time up earlier, if your body tends to be more insulin sensitive at that time, can set you up better for the rest of the day. Um, and it's definitely worth trying. I definitely recommend it now. Again, some people are diehard fasters. They love that. They feel their best. They feel energetic. Wonderful. But you know, if you're still experiencing some blood sugar issues, it might work to try to shift your fasting window a little bit, right? If you're doing it overnight, maybe you move your breakfast up an hour, you move your dinner up an hour. So you're still getting that fasting window overnight. Um, but you can kind of just see the difference in your blood sugar. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I work out fasted in the morning and then I eat breakfast right after that. And that's what feels great for me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all, I'm definitely an early breakfast girl, but I think there's ways to experiment and find what works best for you. And I think for a lot of people, they may find that earlier breakfast may be helpful with the way that their body clock and their circadian rhythm is tending to work.
0: That makes sense. What's your ideal breakfast plate? What do you have? Do you have the same thing every morning? Are you a consistent person? Do you switch it up? (sighs)
1: Yeah. Um, I am like saying three breakfasts kind of kind of girly, but I have found that for my blood sugar, um, typically something like eggs, like two eggs, avocado on some sourdough bread with a little bit of Parmesan cheese works works great for me. You know, I feel full into lunch. Um, I don't see that blood glucose spike. Um, and maybe if I'm a little stressed at work in the morning, right? Like even if I'm eating it like 7.30, um, I might just go for a walk around 9 30, 10 and just take a 20 minute walk. And then I have kind of no issues. I'm able to maintain my energy. Um, so, again, I think the cool thing about glucose monitoring and um, finding out what works best for you is you're kind of getting those clear answers and you can do those tests, right? Maybe, maybe you love your oatmeal and it's spiking you, but like, okay, try having your oatmeal and then maybe having one egg with it, right? Or something like that. You can kind of mix and match and find what's going to best serve you and your energy levels throughout the day.
0: That sounds like the ideal breakfast. I do breakfast bowls. So I'll basically put two sunny-side-up eggs, kale, maybe a handful of you know sweet potatoes that I make. And I find that that variation does not spike my blood sugar. So again, it's all about testing. But I love that you touched on stress because I know that stress can actually cause blood sugar levels to rise due to an increase in that stress hormone cortisol So can you just touch on maybe some other lifestyle choices that can impact our our levels? Absolutely. So I think a really
1: fascinating thing, again, we we always talk about um, with very, we kind of have these four pillars, right? There's things that are in your control when it comes to your glucose level, there's things that aren't. Um, And so the things that aren't in control when it comes to your glucose levels are things like, you know, hereditary, right? Your age, your gender, your race, all of that, right? Like that's pretty, pretty fixed. Um, but the ones that we always kind of recommend and advise people on are nutrition, exercise, sleep, and stress. And stress can actually be the one that feels the most intangible. Uh, because I think sometimes we know that we can't get out of a stressful situation if we're at work or something like that. And that's where your stressor might be. Or you know, if you have little kids or whatever, those, those kinds of things can be stressful. Um, but really, um, what stress... The way stress response works is that it is an evolutionary mechanism from basically when we were hunter-gatherers and it is for fight or flight, right? So if you, um, our ancestors encountered, you know, um, a tiger, a bear, right? Some sort of threat, Um your body is basically going to slow down all metabolic function and flood. The liver releases glycogen, which is a stored form of glucose. Um, so it's basically releasing glucose into your bloodstream so that you have the energy that you need to fight the predator or to take flight, right? To run as fast as you can. It's that adrenaline rush that we feel. Um, and it's really served as well, right? It's it's kept us alive. But at the same time now, right, you might be stressed at an office building and it's you're not you're not running or fighting. You're not using that energy, um, and it can be again still a good response. But over time, if you're constantly feeling that stress or you're constantly experiencing really stressful situations that are spiking your cortisol and thus spiking your blood glucose, um, that chronic stress is an inflammatory condition that can increase metabolic dysfunction, increase glucose dysfunction, increase insulin resistance, um, which is basically breaking down that mechanism we talked about between glucose and insulin at the beginning. So. Um, if you know you can't escape a stressful situation, right? Like we can't all quit our jobs and get a really cushy one all the time. Right. You know, it may be the long-term plan, but, um, you know, I think to look into and to understand stress management for yourself, whether it's meditation, whether it's deep breathing, whether it's taking a quick walk, whether it's doing some yoga poses, those are all things that research has supported as helping to lower cortisol, helping to lower heart rate. And, um, make you feel less stressed in the moment. So paying attention to how you're feeling when you feel stressed and what can be done to manage it is actually really crucial to to glucose regulation and can sometimes be the, the hardest sort of lever to pull uh, when it comes to that kind of thing because we live in a stressful world, you know, so.
0: No, absolutely. I'm preaching to the choir here. I mean, I myself, I'm always like, oh, I don't have enough time to even just go for a five minute walk or do a five minute meditation, but truly even two minutes a day, just of deep breathing has such massive implications. And they've done studies, I think of, you know, people who even meditate 10 minutes, three times a week. The impact of that was so massive that it was measurable on on a brain scan, right? And we read that literature and we're like, wow, this is so powerful, yet we ourselves don't do it. So you know, I think <laughs> another, you know, consistent theme in all the conversations I've had thus far is that small habits have massive, massive implications. And it's not like you have to flip your world upside down you just start with one and then you just build on that. And truly, I mean, once you you start to feel the effects of those habits, you don't want to go back, e.g. being able to regulate your blood sugar and avoiding all of those symptoms that come with spikes.
1: And I think one more thing on that is I think that we all think that, you know, when you hear these lifestyle tips and tricks out there, it can get very rote, right? Like you feel like, oh, I'm going to follow this exactly. And this person says they have to meditate 10 times a day. That's what they say in their book. That's what they say on their Twitter thread. That's what they, right? And you try to, copy this and it's like, oh, I I fell off with that or I wasn't able to do it. And I think what's cool about the monitoring is that it lets you see what actually works for you. There's a million different ways to achieve these kinds of things, right? And you can kind of see what works best for you. And like you said, like implement those smaller habits rather than being like, I have to be really strict and do a 180 on my lifestyle. Um, I'm not a meditation person, but I am a reading person. I am a yoga person. I am a take a walk person. I am a sit out on my back deck person, right? And those are all sort of my forms of meditation. Um, And so, yeah, I think... You can really find what works for you and not have to feel like you're just following a script, right? You're, you're um, finding the sort of keys to unlock your own body, which is really cool.
0: Someone had even mentioned to you that just emptying the dishwasher in the morning was their <laughs> form of meditation. And you asked yeah. yourself why, but it, it truly is. If you're present in the moment as you pick each dish and cup, that's a form of meditation, right? Mindfulness meditation. So absolutely. I love that. And going back though, when we're measuring our blood sugar, what is, I guess, the optimal range that we want to be in? So what is quote unquote considered a spike? And this is something that I had a little bit of trouble with when I first started using a CGM. I was like, all right, my glucose spiked 20 points. Is that a spike or is that normal? Does that vary? Yeah, totally, totally. So on the very app, um, if you're
1: tracking glucose or, you know, I mean, it could be with a finger stick. It could be with, you know, continuous glucose monitoring, whatever. Um, typically the range we have is between 70 to 140, right? There's these kind of lines on the, on the graph, but, um, there's sort of different situational glucose ranges, right? So a normal blood glucose levels, um, uh, before meals or waking up in the morning or whatever is between about 70 to 100 milligrams per deciliter. Um, and that's sort of standard where you sh- where you should hang out, right? So you might rise a little bit, you might fall a little bit. Your glucose usually isn't a perfectly flat straight line. It's sort of, Bumps along a little bit, right? Without any like you mentioned, extreme uh, mountain peaks, jagged, sort of sharp, and and uh, rises and falls. Um, now, about two hours after eating, the outline that we have is it should be below 140 milligrams per deciliter. So, food is obviously going to pretty much always make your blood glucose rise at least a little bit, um, and that again is normal. And I think the important thing is to try to understand a little bit more and focus it on a little bit more of what is a normal physiological response. Like you mentioned, like I just ate food and it was healthy and my blood glucose rose a little bit versus a sort of um, unhealthy or maybe a problematic spike. Now, almost anyone, if you drink a can of Coca-Cola, right, you're going to see a spike. And a spike every once in a while isn't going to kill you. Like we said, it's those repeated patterns over time. So Generally speaking, and it's important to note that there are not hard clinical endpoints for this, meaning that a doctor will be very hesitant to tell you, hey, don't let your glucose rise more than X, right? They're going to give you those ranges. But but based on the research, um, based on what we've seen in, in healthy users, things like that, generally, um, your glucose probably ideally shouldn't be raising more than about 30 milligrams per deciliter. Um after eating something, maybe may be 40. Um, but sort of what we say with people is when you start to have, when you start to measure your um, glucose levels, it's important to sort of understand your typical patterns and then work backwards, right? Like healthy people spike out of range, right? You might eat a bowl of cereal and go up to 160. And it's like, whoa, that's kind of crazy. But how can I start to, cr- maybe the next time I eat this, it's 150. Maybe the next time I eat it, it's 140, right? And kind of get those kinds of things um, so that the spikes are, are less extreme.
0: Yeah. And there's also healthy spikes, right? And those could totally. be things like yeah. exercise-induced spikes or sauna-induced spikes. And again, when I start, first started using a CGM, I would be sitting in my sauna and I, I later would check my very app and I would see that I had a, a massive spike. And I was like, I was in a fasted state. I was just sitting <laughs> in the sauna. How did this happen? And then later learned that those can actually cause blood sugar spikes. But again, it's not in a bad way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's sort of this like, how do we differentiate between a rise or an, and an appropriate physio- physiological response, right? Because your blood glucose is is trying to keep you in a state where you have the appropriate energy um, in your in your system to keep all your muscles and cells and things like that running. So, just sort of trying to follow your patterns and differentiate between what is a healthy, um, normal physiological rise and what is a extreme um, or maybe abnormal spike that is causing your system stress. So, yeah. Right. Definitely definitely something that you learn with monitoring.
0: That makes sense and you touched on this before, but you know, when we keep experiencing blood sugar spikes over time, right? Our cells stop responding to that insulin and then they become insulin resistant. We spoke about short-term symptoms associated with some of those spikes, but what can happen as a result of sustained periods of elevated glucose? And this is an area that I've become interested in particularly with regards to the possible development of neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's and obviously diabetes, insulin resistance, hormonal disorders. What is the link with all of those? Yeah,
1: I think what's, what's really crazy is that like the link typically is like stress can cause inflammation and inflammatory conditions um, can be very problematic for long-term health. Now, the mechanism, meaning like the true, like uh, how, one biological or or biochemical um, sort of substance causes um, uh, the downflow of like developing diabetes, type 2 diabetes is not fully understood, but it's sort of these clusters of symptoms, right? So like for developing type 2 diabetes, you might be like, this person has a high waist circumference, you know, over a certain amount, they have high blood pressure um, and they are glucose intolerant and they have insulin resistance, right? So, I think the thing that we've seen is that glucose and insulin can affect all kinds of systems in your body. And as these sort of, this sort of like, um, system starts to sort of fall out of whack, it can affect a bunch of different people in different ways. You know, not every person who has glucose intolerance is going to develop type two diabetes, but they might have chronic inflammation. They might develop cardiovascular disease. They might have high blood pressure, like all of those kinds of conditions. They might have, you know, uh, brain disorder, we've seen Alzheimer's and like uh, neurodegenerative uh, conditions in the brain be connected to blood glucose, insulin, insulin resistance, things like that. And so we are seeing the way that this system keeps you alive and is so beautiful in that sense, but also can sort of affect almost every component of the body. And like, you know, when you talk about like um, neurodegenerative disorders or things like that, you know, uh, complication of diabetes, which right is because of insulin and and glucose dysregulation is that you can have neuropathy almost, almost anywhere, right? Like it's neuropathy, meaning nerve damage, right? Sometimes it's peripheral in your fingers and toes. Sometimes it's in, um, you know, nephropathy, you're going to have it in your kidneys, right? So it's sort of this thing that keeps everything afloat. And when I say this thing, I mean, you know, glucose balance and, and insulin keeps everything going in your body, which is like so, so incredible, incredible and miraculous, but it also can uh, you know, affect everything in your body negatively if we start to kind of let that harmony fall fall apart, right? If we start to not not take care of our metabolic health before we get to the place of being diagnosed with pre diabetes or type two diabetes or something like that.
0: That's why I'm such a nerd in this space, Emily, because our bodies are so complex and they truly are miraculous. And when one thing is out of function properly, it affects all the other symptoms, right? So it's truly about maintaining balance, and I think. One of the most interesting connections that I learned over the past few years when I first got into this topic was the link between insulin resistance and hormone disorders like polycystic ovary syndrome. And for listeners, women with PCOS have too much insulin in their blood and insulin inhibits the ovaries' ability to convert androgens like testosterone into estrogen. So essentially, it's like the ovaries are attempting to convert those androgens into estrogens but aren't able to. And I even read a study that showed that if you avoid glucose spikes as a woman with PCOS, you can actually reduce your testosterone by 25% in a few weeks, which is absolutely incredible. So there definitely are certain populations of people, I think, that should be extra focused on ensuring that they're not experiencing those mountains and valleys on a daily basis, right? Yeah,
1: we actually, um, PCOS is a great one because PCOS is a disease or a condition rather that is pretty, uh, you know, we've established it as a condition, but there's still actually... is sort of a, a discourse or not a clear diagnostic criteria everywhere. So it's not like a situation where across all medical systems or across all um, diagnoses, they're using the exact same measurements, whether it be blood, whether it be, you know, no, noticing the the um, cysts on ovaries themselves, things like that um, are being used to diagnose. So we don't even know the extent of how many women actually suffer from this. I, you know, I think somewhere it was like anywhere from six to 14 to 25 percent of the female population is is suffering from this. So, uh, but one thing that they have noticed is that I, a large percentage of women, you know, over half. I'm, I'm don't quote me on the statistic, but I believe the study said something like 60 to 70 percent of of women with PCOS do experience um, insulin resistance. And we have seen both in our various users who have started to use um, a CGM for. And, and have PCOS, um, a lot of people have been really been able to manage symptoms with with that. And also, we recently actually did um, a case study with a coach who was using Varia for her clients. It was a um, a group of women who were having fertility struggles, whether it was lack of menstruation, whether it was trying to get pregnant, infertility, um, things like that. And they actually had several people in the program starting to use vary and blood sugar banded balancing methods. Um, we're able to get pregnant, we're able to return to having their menstrual cycle. Um, so it's not, you know, I'm not going to say that that's the thing that will cure it, but it, there's definitely a connection there. And um, we've seen people have success with it, which is really, really encouraging to see the way that um, balancing or stabilizing your blood sugar levels can help you in other areas of health, right? Infertility health or sexual or reproductive health, things like that.
0: It's truly foundational, especially with PCOS. And I think one of the things about tracking your blood sugar is it has spillover effects, right? You're going to think twice about opening your fridge at 10 o'clock at night if you have a sugar craving because it's going to show up on your CGM the next day. So I think that's a the mindfulness component of that is huge. But when we think about insulin resistance, I mean, we know it's reversible to an extent, at least hopefully in a majority of the population. Is there a typical time frame? I guess, that someone can hope to completely reverse that? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think
1: this kind of touches on our view or various view of metabolic health as a spectrum, right? We're sort of trying to break away from the traditional um, view or, or maybe method or whatever you want to call it that like you're either sick or you're not right. It's, it's not black and white. And when I say sick, I mean, it's like, you know, you're healthy until one day you go to the doctors and you have a pre-diabetes or a type two diabetes diagnosis, right? There's a lot that happens between, you know, being in perfect health and developing diabetes. You don't just wake up one morning and like suddenly everything's shut down kind of thing. So, um, I think, the key and, and why we encourage this is to kind of understand where you're at on the spectrum um, by starting to look at your blood glucose and starting to do some monitoring. And, um, you know, there is research to show that things like exercise or food choice or what have you can have immediate effects, right? Like exercise, a 30-minute session of exercise will make you more insulin sensitive for the, you know, 8 to 16 hours following it, right? So you're, you're just going to have better insulin sensitivity, those eight to sixteen hours, even if you never exercise again. However, um, obviously, we don't want that to to be the case. And so, for some people, it can happen much more rapidly that they can start to see that insulin sensitivity increase. Um, but it can take you know weeks, months, right? It's it's almost like t- like if you have a lot of weight to lose, and in in that regard, you need to reverse insulin resistance. It can take months, and you know it's about building those healthy habits over time to help you become more healthy and to maintain that better, better version of health. Um, sort of the Rome was a built in a day analogy, right? Um, and unfortunately there's not like a direct, like six weeks and you're good to go. But, um, yeah, it's little things, like I said, little things are going to have an immediate effect. I think that's the cool thing is that you can start doing this, start monitoring your blood sugar. You can start taking action and you'll see immediate effects and that'll encourage you to want to want to do more, right. To want to, uh, Create better habits tre- to implement these habits more frequently, so that you can kind of you can be more resilient and flexible, right? So that you don't have to worry when you go on vacation and you um, aren't following your your typical routine of blood sugar balancing. So that you can indulge, right? It's not about it's not about being perfect. It's about being healthy the majority of the time, so that you can enjoy your life to the fullest and live the life that you want for the longest period of time in the best health. And and that's what we're hoping to help people achieve.
0: That is so spot on and I think too sadly people get so caught up in this all or nothing mentality that the moment they slip up it's like up oh, let's just you know let's slash the other three tires and yeah. it's really it's really not a great mindset to be I I have been there many a time before but it it truly is not all or nothing so I couldn't agree with you more there and for listeners who want to embark on this journey they want to optimize their blood sugar levels throughout the day and maybe they're not quite where they want to be nutritionally. What are some, maybe like, I don't want to use the word hacks, maybe like tips or things that they can do to use as substitutes, for example, in a day-to-day basis to help them kind of get over those old habits or humps. So for example, like substituting monk fruit for cane sugar. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So I think that, um, again, like anyone who's going to tell you that artificial sweeteners are, you know, or something like that is, is, you know, verboten and you shouldn't be doing it at all. I think it's a great step in your process, right? If you're drinking Coca-Cola every day and you're switching to diet Coke, right. Or something like that, or you're switching to crystal light instead of lemonade that you've been drinking, like great. That is going to cut out a ton of calories. That is going to cut out a ton of blood sugar spikes that you're going to have. And it's a, it's a great step in the process to making healthier choices, right? It's all about making healthier choices, um, and, and sort of making those small incremental changes that are going to lead to big change. Now, the thing I will say is that if you are switching out some sort of, um, calorie free sweetener or, you know, maybe stevia, it might even be natural, you know, whatever it is, I'm not, not, I'm being a sweetener, agnostic here, right? Uh, I know there's like a lot of talk about artificial sweeteners, but um, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not going into that, but um, being sweetener agnostic, uh, you know, it's, it's great to make a healthier choice and it's great to take that step. But I do think that if you are not addressing the root cause of the problem, um, which is a cr- a sugar craving, or I need to eat dessert every, or I'm, you know, even if you're binging on something low calorie, that's still not a healthy behavior, right? To be binging on something that's artificially sweetened, even if it's, you're, you're still tasting that sweetness, is what I'm trying to say, right? Your brain is still getting that, you know, dopamine rush of like I'm trying to use sugar for something, whether it's stress, whether it's emotional reasons, whatever it might be. So I think what's important is trying to understand the root cause which you know might be stress might be something else and also trying to get at that root cause right so you can even cut out sugar for a little bit. Reset your taste buds. Your taste buds get accustomed to a taste of sweetness. Um, and if you're just used to everything being really uh, sweetened all the time, you're gonna things aren't gonna taste sweet to you, right? Like an apple or berries might taste sour because like you're so used to something being really, really sweet. So trying to reset a little bit, trying to find substitutes for whatever that may be, whether it's stress, you you know, how can I do better stress management techniques? You know, that might be helpful because I think otherwise, you know, you may get stuck in sort of like a binge restrict cycle or something like that. So kind of trying to just understand where this is coming from. Great. And I, you know, everyone needs to make their own choices, but personally, I'm somebody who would rather indulge in something a little bit sweeter, like the real brownie every once in a while, right. Um, then have the, the fake sweetener brownie and have it not really taste as good, but trying to kind of like scratch that itch. So I think getting to the root cause and getting yourself to a place where you have a healthy relationship with those indulgences can be can be really helpful um, for for long-term relationship with food, blood glucose management, and, and sort of overall mental mental health and well-being.
0: I couldn't agree more. And there's actually been a lot of research on people who follow restrictive, very restrictive diets they have a more likelihood to binge. So to your point about just, you know, you should occasionally indulge in that one thing that makes you happy. If it's a cup Mm -hmm. of ice cream or a brownie, you will probably be more or less likely to, again, binge on that at some point in the future because you don't have this mindset of restriction. And on the topic of mindset, Emily, I'm, I'm curious of your thoughts on this too. We're touching the surface of the impact of our thoughts on our health. For example, let's say I eat a slice of pizza And the entire time I'm telling myself, this is so bad for me. It's going to spike my blood sugar. It's going to make me gain five pounds. Our bodies respond to those thoughts, right? And actually create the symptoms that we're going to experience. If it's, you know, I eat gluten and now I'm going to have brain fog. I'm a wreck when I'm in reality, I'm fine. Have you dabbled in that area? And if so, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I've
1: read some studies about that. And I I think it's really fascinating. And I think like getting into the way that our, our mind creates or, or supports or whatever it may be. Our reality is, is really fascinating. Um, I'm certainly not an expert and I do think that for people who, uh, you know, may have a, have a real issue, it is important to get to the root of the issue. Like I said, right? Like there are just some things that are physiological and you might have a condition or whatever. And, um, it's not possible to totally just change your mindset and, and fix it. However, it's certainly a part of the equation. Um, and I do think that like, especially when a lot of people nowadays are coming from one program to the next, right. They're like, well, I tried X diet. I tried this, you know, clean, whatever. I tried this, you know, eight month pro, or, you know, the eight month program, eight week program, whatever it is. Right. And now I'm coming to vary. it's like, you come in with this mindset of like we talked about, like the all or nothing, I got to be really extreme. I'm going to overhaul my whole life. And you get into this sort of like, you're, you're holding it so tightly, right. You're like, everything is tensed. You're, you're finally going to fix whatever the problem is that you're in search of fixing. And I think like really approaching something from a growth mindset, from a curiosity mindset, um, can be really helpful for learning, for understanding your body, for developing those new habits, right. And feeling like, yeah, I'm not going to be perfect because this is new to me, but rather I'm learning and I'm trying to grow. And that can really help you be, um, somebody who's able to form habits, to stick to it longer, um, to not berate yourself for, um, for, Failing or falling off the wagon or whatever you want to call it, right? Like it's not bad failures, and I think in the health and diet space, we get a lot of that or a lot um, when it comes to mindset, right? That negative mindset of like, if I do this diet right, I'm good. If I don't, I am. I personally am bad, right? And it's like, it's not all that. It's just about learning and trying to make incremental progress, and so that's where I see at least, you know, on our side of things, the mindset set really come in and making a change there can really help you be successful at your um, health goals and forming new healthy habits.
0: Amen to all of that. Emily, I have to have have another episode with you just dedicated to mindset because a whole other area there, massive health implications, but I, I love that and I couldn't agree more. This has been such a wonderful episode. I do want to be conscious of your time. We've touched on so many important topics for listeners and what I think is truly going to be Life-changing for folks that are hearing about this for the first time. But with that, where can listeners find you? Yeah, so um,
1: I mostly uh, operate out of the very accounts. Um, I, I help with that, you know, we have a, the very stable at very stable v-e-r-i-s-t-a-b-l-e on instagram um we're also on linkedin and we are on youtube as well so um find us there and you know we do a lot of all different kinds of cool and and fun uh series on social media and um videos things like that answer questions whatever it may be so we hope to see listeners there
0: Wonderful, and I will include the links for all of that in the show notes as well. And I think I shared um, a bit on my experience with Barry. I'm actually next week going to put in another CGM because I want to start experimenting again with a few other things that I haven't quite had the chance to yet. But I'll be sharing that experience with listeners as well. And my last question for you is: What does being well and strong mean to you? Love that. Um, So for me,
1: um, like I said, I kind of touched on this, but being well and strong, means to uh, both physically and mentally take care of myself. Like being physically strong is great. I love to exercise. I love to lift weights, all those kinds of things, but how can I create a life through my choices in, you know, the food that I eat, the way that I move my body, uh, the way that I engage in the things that I like, the way I form social relationships that are going to support the, um, Healthiest and happiest version of me, right? So, uh, making sure that I don't feel guilty when I indulge on vacation, or making sure that I feel good about the choices I'm making, um, so that I can, like I said, enjoy my life, have a long and happy life that is both um, healthy and enjoyable. That's that's kind of what it what it means to me.
0: I love that, beautiful Emily. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's such a pleasure meeting you, and I'm looking forward to having you back on. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so, so much for having me. It was such, such a wonderful
1: conversation. And yeah, I feel like we just scratched the surface. So anytime, I'm I'm ready for part two.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe, leave a rating, and share it with others. Be sure to visit wellandstrong.com to access notes from the show and to stay current with new content. I'm so grateful you joined me. Be well and be strong.